Welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we look for stories in the surreal and wild corners of history. Yes, we try to find the wee details in the tapestry of Scottish heritage that are perhaps overlooked. I'm Annie. And I'm Jenny. And this week we're digging into these hidden nooks and crannies looking for some of our favourite animals in Scotland. This includes real-life beautiful species and our mythological bestiaries as well. <laughs> That's right. This week we're looking into stories of the unicorn, the Scottish wildcat, wow. puffin and deer. The wonderful thing about this Scottish zoo episode is that these animals are out in the wild on the Scottish glens, mountains and forests, in the history books or in our imagination. While Scotland is a small country, there is a lot of wildlife packed into it and throughout the ages, people have lived alongside these animals and their stories have intertwined with ours, both real and legendary. Let's begin with Scotland's national animal. The haggis. Uh, the unicorn. Well, much like the haggis, it is full of oats. Actually, probably more like organs, but yeah. <laughs> Indeed, Jenny. The unicorn is a myth that appears throughout time and space. It is an origin so ancient that it's impossible to pinpoint. And a lot of the stories about unicorns made the existence of them hard to question. When faraway, remote lands really were inaccessible, how could you prove that unicorns didn't exist? Okay, so that kind of explains why we see people from all over the world always kind of believing that the unicorn is real, even though they've never seen one. Unicorns were said to live in faraway lands and the wildest places, so think of your knowledge of the world as a map and find the places that are least travelled, most remote, that there's few stories about. That's where the unicorns live, right on the periphery of reality. Mm. Also, they're lunar emblems, meaning that they are associated with night and with the moonlight. So it's very hard to hunt and question the existence of the unicorn when it could possibly live on the moon or within the moonlight itself. Ah, so that's why everyone's so interested in going back to the moon again. Catch yourself a unicorn. <laughs> also, I've read that only kings could capture a unicorn. Oh, oh well, maybe that's why Charles hasn't become king yet. He hasn't been able to catch a unicorn. <laughs> Well I'm sure <laughs> Well I'm sure he will one day. Plus the unicorn is a symbol of power and masculinity. Ah, but it's also a symbol of purity and innocence. Yes, the unicorn is so pure that it is said that their horns could be used to remove poison or toxins. The unicorn would dip its horn into water and purify it, allowing all of the other animals to drink without harm. Oh, awesome. I love it when we get to tell people that our national animal is a unicorn. How did it make its way to this prestigious role? Well, unicorns were present in mythologies across the globe. And narwhal tusks with beautiful spiral grooves would have been used as evidence that unicorns actually existed. And sometimes these narwhal tusks were sold as unicorn horns. Amazing. Over time, it developed into a symbol of power and status. Okay, so on our passport cover, the unicorn is on there, and it's there to symbolise power, but it's also got a chain around its neck, so is that like the English chaining us to them? Not quite, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> the unicorn is the most wild, dangerous, and untamable of all animals. Mm -hmm. The chains are to show that the Scottish king had captured the animal 
and was thus stronger than it, mm. making him a very powerful leader. But seeing as you mentioned it, the unicorn was also the natural enemy of the lion. The unicorn wears a crown as a chain round its neck, whereas the lion wears his proudly on his head. Ah, okay. So who was the first king of Scotland to tame a unicorn and make it our national animal? Ah, this was in the 12th century with William I, who was somewhat unironically known as William the Lion. Oh, I know. So he's the one with the yellow flag. So in Scotland, we have two flags. We have the blue saltire with the white cross, and then we have the yellow flag with the red lion rampant on it. That's his, right? Yes, that's him. He put the unicorn on the Scottish coat of arms, but used the lion rampant as his own royal emblem. Mm. And there's evidence that his heir, Alexander II, introduced it as a royal banner of Scotland. It's stuck and has since been flown at royal residencies in Scotland when the monarch wasn't present. And the unicorn also stuck and became our national animal. When James VI of Scotland became King of England in 1603, unifying the countries, he changed his coat of arms from being two unicorns holding a shield to depicting a lion and a unicorn together supporting the shield and representing that the countries had become unified under crown, which is why we see this symbol now on the British passport. Ah, brilliant. So I found a strange old English nursery rhyme that talks about the lion and the unicorn and their duel. Ah, yes. This was actually repeated in, I think, Alice in Wonderland, one of the Lewis Carroll books. Okay. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and sent them out of town. At least they got cake. I have no idea why they got cake. Oh. Our next animal in the Scottish Zoo is my personal favourite and spirit animal, the Scottish wildcat. Very fitting, Jenny. You do love to roam around the mountains. Ah, that is true. Scottish wildcats are elusive hunting machines. They've lived on the British Isles for over two million years, but became truly separated from their European counterparts about 9,000 years ago. This is when the Great Ice Age was ending and the melting ice caused the sea levels to rise, which in turn caused the land bridge connecting us to the European mainland to be submerged. And since then, Scottish wildcats have evolved to be larger than European wildcats. Because of the cold, harsh conditions of northern Scotland, they need more fat and longer fur to keep warm. A wildcat these days is twice the size of a regular house cat, Oof. with a more robust skull and stronger limbs. However, there are examples of wildcats being much larger and bigger than this, possibly with a wee bit of historical exaggeration, no. such as this quote from Thomas Berwick in 1790. The hair of the wildcat is soft and fine, of a pale yellow colour mixed with grey. A dusky red runs along the middle of its back from head to tail. The sides are streaked with grey, the tail is thick and marked with alternate bars of black and white. It inhabits the most mountainous and woody parts of this island, lives in trees and hunts for birds and small animals such as rabbits and hares. It frequently makes great havoc amongst poultry and will even kill young lambs, kids and fawns and is the most fierce and destructive beast of all prey in this kingdom. Some wildcats have been taken in this kingdom of a most enormous size. We recollect one having been killed in the county of Cumbernauld, which measured from nose to end of its tail upwards of five feet. 
At one point he says kids. Does he mean children or small deer? Uh, he means small goats. Oh, a kid oh, is a baby go. goat. Okay, I, I almost had to stop reading the quote there. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was like, well, it was the 1790s. <laughs> but this is really exceptional, and it's it's possible that he's just reporting on folklore, that the cat was quite so... Yeah, and unfortunately... Well, maybe not, because it, it, it's unfortunate that now the cats are decreasing in size due to hybridisation with house cats, one of the major threats to the wildcat population. There are between 1,000 and 4,000 wildcats in Scotland, but pure wildcats are so rare that as few as 400 are believed to be alive, making them one of the most endangered species in the world. The other main threat to them is the loss of suitable habitat to survive in. They used to live all over the British Isles. However, due to industrialisation and urbanisation, their habitat has been reduced to just the Scottish Highlands, with their last strongholds in the far northwest and northeast. But also the Cairngorm National Park has a couple of wildlife cameras that have caught, they think, quite a few new young wildcats this year, which is really cool. So they're coming back, hopefully. I love wildcat kittens. They're so adorable. They are. Cats like large areas to roam in search of prey. They're very adaptable animals and survive in many environments such as forests, moors, farmlands and mountain foothills, although they haven't quite adapted to cities yet. They should take a lesson from the urban fox. They probably just eat it. The cats are very powerful hunters. They have massive jaws and teeth that allow them to catch and kill all sorts of prey. They're also incredibly agile and quiet hunters and while they could take on a fox, they much prefer mice, small birds and rabbits. They live solitary lives, with the male living alone until mating season and the females raising their kittens until they're old enough to survive on their own. They're rarely spotted in the wild, as not only are they incredibly rare, they're also crepuscular animals, meaning that they are mainly active during the dawn and dusk. They're animals of the twilight. Oh, this definitely ties into the mythology that surrounds the wild cat. Ah, the cat Sith. Actually, Jenny, it's Gaelic and it's pronounced cat she. Oh, right. Well, either way, it's the dark side of the, the wild cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awful joke. I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a mysterious and sly fairy cat that is as big as a dog and haunts the Scottish Highlands. The cat she has an all-black coat with a white diamond on its chest and it's known as the king of all of the cats. Oh, king of the cats. I know this. So there's one story, right? It was said that one day a man was walking home, and as he was walking home, he saw nine black cats with white spots on their chest carrying a coffin. And so obviously he was like, I gotta go ask these cats what they're doing. And they said, they tell him, tell Tom Tildrum that Tim Tildrum is dead. And as he told this to his wife and his own cat when he got home that was called Old Tom, he went, what? Old Tim is dead? Then I'm king of the cats! And Old Tom then climbed up the chimney and was never seen again. A strange tale indeed, (laughs) that of the chimney cat. But Old Tom may never have been seen again because he was too busy stealing souls. (laughs) It was thought that the cat, she could steal the soul of a person before it got to heaven by passing over the body at a funeral. It was also attracted to warmth, 
so to protect their deceased loved ones, Highland folk wouldn't light any fires in the room that the body lay and would keep watch at all times to ensure that no shadow cat was able to sneak up and thieve the soul of their loved one. But it makes sense because you want to keep bodies in a cold room, Mm -hmm. don't you? Yeah. And you want to keep animals away from your bodies too. Yep, they get nibbly. (laughs) Well, while old Tom King Cat was busy soul collecting, uh, there's a demonic cat she called Big Ears who could be summoned through a ceremony called Tagame, where if you burnt the body of a cat for four days and four nights, your house would smell pretty awful. But also, Big Ears would appear and grant you any wish. Probably for, like, a scented candle or something at that point. (laughs) But uh, the wild cat that we know and love is an icon of the Scottish wilderness. One of the truly unruly and untamable, like, the the, the epitome of freedom. It roams the mountains and forests, just living this lonely, solitary life and overcoming the harsh weather and shrinking habitats. And it's just managing to survive in the rapidly changing world. Yes, if there's one animal that can survive in the toughest environments, it's the wild cat. Because it's really good at stealing souls. <laughs> it takes more than a soul to keep yourself warm, Jenny. <laughs> so let's talk about one of Scotland's most beloved and iconic birds. Nature writer Massington describes it as an oddling ocklet which, from its painted nose, is called such clowning names, which it counteracts by its immense solemnity. It's an abundant native of our wilder and most precipitous cliffs. This odd wee solemn clown is, of course, the puffin. These bonny wee Atlantic seabirds have such vibrantly bright beaks that they have sometimes been called the parrot of the sea, The largest colony of puffins in the UK can be found on the World Heritage Site of St Kilda. The last 36 people of the community of St Kilda were evacuated from the island in 1930. And this island off the remote far west coast of Scotland is now home to about a quarter of a million puffins. Yes, over 80% of the UK's puffin population is found in Scotland. St Kilda is an incredibly important site because puffins are on red conservation status. They are a decreasing and vulnerable species. Mm. I know, isn't it sad? Mm -hmm. But they are one of our favourite birds because they always look ready for a festival. Yes, definitely, because the most distinctive feature of the puffin is that gorgeous coloured beak. Yes, a thick stripe of rich orange vermilion covers the tip embossed with thin sunbeams of yellow, offset by a delicate cloudy grey blending towards its face. Their beaks look so exquisitely painted, almost like bright and delicate icing on a cake. And it matches a bright orange on their legs. Strangely though, the beak is all for show. After the mating season, the beak falls off and they have a much smaller blue one underneath. Oh, uh, sorry. A watery periwinkle blue with shimmers of grey so sleek they could be from the unicorn's tail itself. <laughs> oh, Jenny. They also, they also have a certain, like, chonkiness about them that just adds endlessly to their cuteness. Yes, they are adorable. <laughs> one of the stories I found about puffins on St Kilda is not the most joyful tale, though. Mm-hmm. It's from a travel book called A Voyage Round the Coasts of Scotland and the Isles 
by James Wilson, who's from Paisley, where you're from, so you don't actually need to do an accent. Oh, that's disappointing. So James Wilson travels to St Kilda, an archipelago, a collection of islands, on the western edge of the Outer Hebrides. He describes St Kilda as looking as though nature has left it majestic as a ruin. His St Kilda journey begins as he approaches by boat and sees thousands of puffins flying overhead, sometimes very close to the ship, skimming the seas for their dinners. He describes their behaviour. All the stony ridges of the Dun, that's one of the St Kilda Islands, were covered by innumerable puffins, which lay their single eggs in deep subterranean crevices among the stones and splintered rocks, though not along the more precipitous edges. It is a fat little bird. The upper portions of the plumage and a ring around the neck are black. The sides of the head and the underparts are white. We approached the landing place in the rowboat and looked around the quiet waters and the green and simple hills. The living air was filled with the flapping wings of rock-haunting seafowl. The small group of St Kildians seemed cheered by our arrival. The first house we came to was pretty large and slated, close upon the right-hand shore. It is used as a store for containing the feathers of the seafowl, the staple export of the island. Okay, so this is quite curious. The vast majority of St Kildans didn't use currencies like on the mainland. They would pay their rents and make trades using feathers that they stripped from seabirds, such as puffins and gannets. These feathers were exported off the island and used on the mainland for bedding, cushions and duvets. And the black feathers were worth the most. Wow, okay. Anyway, James learns more about St Kildan hospitality. We rested for a time in one of the houses, inhabited by a widow and her daughter, and found that the former had been with her dog across the hill that morning to collect her food, which, at certain seasons, is scattered before them like a manna in the wilderness. Ah, okay, so this manna in the wilderness is a biblical reference to talk about miraculous food that God gave the Israelites in Exodus. But in this context, it means a bountiful food source, which we will discover is... They have flesh rained upon them as a dust and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. Yes, so the sea fowl flesh raining upon them means that they are eating the puffins. Oh no! Their chief sustenance at this time consisted of the small sea fowl before mentioned under the name of puffin. The widow had snared about a score. So that's about 20. And having already eaten a few for breakfast, was now employed in boiling a corresponding number for dinner. We saw their little fat bodies turning round and round in the pod and would have tasted one as soon as it was ready had we not happened at the time to be less carnivorously inclined than usual in consequence of the tossing of the previous night. Oh, it just breaks my heart to think of a wee pot filled with puffins. (laughs) These birds are caught by stretching a piece of cord along the stony places where they chiefly congregate. To this cord, numerous nooses are fastened at various intervals, and from time to time, when the countless puffins are paddling upon the surface, in go their little web feet. They get noosed around the ankle and no sooner begin to flap and flutter than down rushes a ruthless widow woman and twists her neck. Her dog had acted a useful part, not only in driving more distant or otherwise inaccessible birds from their roosting places towards these nooses, but by catching them dexterously in its mouth. So, as horrible as this is to talk about, it was written (laughs) over 150 years ago, though puffins remained a food source on St Kilda until its evacuation.
Padgett, I also found some slightly more jolly puffin-related archives. For example, have you ever heard the phrase, the Tammy Nori of the Bass, can I kiss a bonnie lass? Um, no. Honestly, I have not. <laughs> oh, that's awkward. Okay, well, the phrase, the Taminari of the bass, can I kiss a bonnie lass, is probably trying to say that shy, silly-looking seabirds don't get kisses. But then I found an explanation in a Georgian book on popular rhymes of Scotland, which explained... This is said in jest, when a young man refuses to salute a rustic coquette. So that's when a lad doesn't salute a lassie that he wants to court. In the modern context, it probably just means someone too shy to flirt. The court continues. <clears throat> the puffin, which builds in great numbers on the bass rock, is a very shy bird, with a long, deep bill, giving him an air of stupidity. And from these two things together, the saying probably has arisen. It is also customary to call a stupid-looking man a Tammy Nori. So, Tammy Nori is one of my favourite Scots names for the puffin. It so marvellously describes the strange, frightened circus of this clumsy-looking but strong, powerful seabird. Unlike the rhyme, romantic wee puffins aren't shy at all to flirting. They form long-term relationships, often mating for life. And both parents incubate and care for the baby puffling. A baby (laughs) puffin is called a puffling, Jenny. It's true. Such sweet-looking and beautiful birds, it's not a surprise that they are seen as iconic of Scottish coasts. Plus, as a protected bird, they can no longer be boiled in pots. Thankfully. Yep. So from some of the most rare to some of the most common animals in Scotland, the deer. Yes, the monarch of the glen is surely the deer. From fields to shortbread tins, deer are very dear to us. (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) (laughs) Stagheads adorn the fireplaces all over Scotland, from stately homes to warm, dark pubs and bothies. They look out from the hearth and hang tall and proud. They definitely are a staple of the countryside and the culture of our country. If we rewind a tad from the stag's point of view, back before it was stuffed and hung precariously with fishing line, back to when this little guy was born, this stag is a male red deer. At an average of two metres tall, it is the largest of the deer species. It was born to a mother, a doe, who'd been part of the father's harem, which he protected via rutting. As our dad stag has a harem, he's probably peak age, around eight years old. Now his dad had been preparing to defend his group of female deer all year. Since spring, he's been growing a fresh set of antlers. But rutting season starts in August, and some of these deer have absolutely massive antlers. So how could this possibly grow in just a few months? Great question. Antlers can grow up to 2.5 centimetres a day. And, as a general rule of thumb, the bigger and older the deer, the bigger and stronger the antlers. And our stag's dad would have had a nice set. He probably also had a winter mane coming in for the colder months, so he is looking fly right now. Have you ever seen stags with velvet on their antlers? Yeah, so that's before rutting season. The velvet is to protect them. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. They just look so soft. I want to stroke them. Yep, but it's not just about his looks or his velvety horns. He's got to fight (laughs) off other male deer that try to gain control of his harem. Stags will lock horns and rut over the does. Most times, the larger, more experienced deer will win and the loser will back down. But it can be really violent and sometimes even result in fatalities. 
one time when I was hiking, I found I'd like hiked by a deer that had j- clearly just been defeated and killed in a rut. It was it was crazy. It was very gory. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you you can hear them sometimes roaring when they're rutting. Yes, uh, the deep guttural roar of the stag. They'll roar during rutting or to keep other stags at distance, but actually they mainly roar to keep the harem together because the females are drawn to their glen-filling, long, loud bellows. Oh, wow. I, I always thought it was a very almost violent call, but actually for deers, it's the language of love. And what love it is. So much so that eight months later, our decorational deer was born. Oh, wow. So eight months, that's quite a long time. It is. He needed time to grow. Deer kids are born weighing 33 pounds. 33 pounds? Yeah, they're big. They're they're big babies. And after two weeks, they're big enough to join the herd and they're fully weaned at two months. After this, our deer spent the next few years living in the forests and glens and moorlands with a group of other males until rutting season, where he would watch and observe from the edges of ruts, waiting until he's big enough to challenge another male. And when did he become majestic enough to rut? Oh, probably around eight or nine, and he definitely was majestic. So much so that when he was killed by a hunter in his prime, he was deemed impressive enough to mount. Oh, I I forgot that he ended up above a fireplace. Yeah, unfortunately he was no match for a gun and ended up above the fireplace in some nice pub in Scotland. Why did you write this horrible story, Jenny? Honestly, I thought you'd cut it out, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote about the puffins! Okay, at least we didn't eat the stack. Oh, we probably ate the stack as well, but... <laughs> so moving on to the controversial issue of deer hunting. Hmm. The majority of environmentalists agree that deer need to be culled for the diversity of the ecosystem and that deer hunting is a necessary task in Scotland. Deer's natural predators the wolf and lynx, were themselves hunted to extinction in Scotland. However, the image of deer hunting is still seen as something undertaken by the elite. Though a lot of the culling of deer nowadays is paid, deer stalkers are employed by estates to go and clear the land of deer. Rich people don't really pay to shoot deer, they pay to shoot grouse. Oh, that's sad because I really love grouse. And grouse don't damage any environment, really. No, they really. don't. <laughs> Uh, not in the way that the overpopulation of deer does. No, but they are much easier to shoot. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. Grouse are great. But for deer, as a result of not having any predators nipping at their heels, they their populations have boomed. And all these deer need to eat. Deer love young buds and shoots, and large herds will hoover up everything in their path. This halts the natural procession of succession, where one ecosystem leads the way for a more complex ecosystem. So instead of an open moorland slowly becoming seeded with trees and other plants and becoming a forest, it remains a moorland, never getting the chance to develop. Yes, this is a problem. And there's a large push to rewild rural Scotland right now. The aim is to allow the natural regeneration of forests in areas that have been cleared for generations to make way for agriculture and sheep. Unfortunately, this isn't possible in many areas due to the huge deer populations. So in order to restore our natural environment, we have to balance out the numbers of deer. Ah, but the good news is that rewilding is actually going really well in a fair few places, especially in Glen Feshi and the Cairngorms. There they fenced off an entire glen and the results have been astounding. Although my personal favourite solution is to reintroduce the wolf. 
That would make Quaz camping a lot more wild. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I get I get scared in the house alone at night. Imagine me being alone in a tent at night with wolves howling. <laughs> <laughs> central to Celtic mythology. In some stories, they are described as being the cattle of the fairies. Fairies would herd, breed and milk deer like wee magical farmers. Always with the women taking the main roles of milking the deer and also deciding which deer would be sacrificed to hunters. They did this by striking the deer during a milking seance. Oh, wow, a milking seance. This is getting interesting. Yes, a milking seance. Also, a common form for fairy women to transform themselves into would be red deer, while witches would be more likely to transform into cats, gulls, or sheep. Ah, well, in the Celtic mythology, deer are associated with woodland deities. Cernunos, the horned one, is depicted in Celtic art throughout the centuries. He's the body of a man, but the horns of a stag, and is often seated peacefully, surrounded by other animals. Now, although no written records remain, it is believed from the artwork that the horned one was the god of the forest, wild animals and fertility. Yes, the stag represents a lot of Celtic connections to nature. There's also stories of deer being like supernatural messengers, bringing communications to the gods from nature and being so shy that they will only come into contact with humans when they have valuable messages. The Calach, an ancient Celtic woman goddess, the one who builds the mountains, she calls the deer the beast of my love. And there's stories of the Calach making her deer invincible to bullets and charming them so that they were impossible to stalk and ah. would just slip out of the view of hunters. Oh, interesting, because there's folklore of a shape-shifting deer banshee woman who is always wild and never has any signs of domestic life around her. <laughs> Sounds like me. They trans- <laughs> <laughs> Mythology. <laughs> they transform between woman form and deer and give blessings or curses to hunters depending on their whims. In old Gaelic tradition, if a woman asks a hunter for a piece of venison, then it's bad fortune for him to refuse. Excellent. And there's a brilliant folk tale of a hunter who spends a whole day stalking one deer. And as the sun is setting, he gets into position to shoot. He sets his arrow in his bow and tightens it. Then, in the last minute before he releases the arrow, suddenly the deer turns into the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. So instead, he sets the arrow to the sky. When he looks back, the deer is just a deer again. And so, feeling silly, he takes another arrow from his quiver. Again, he gets into shooting stance. And again, the deer turns into a gorgeous woman, just standing there in the glens, looking lost and lonely. So he sends his arrow to the gloaming sky. He steps towards her and she transforms back into a deer. So he gets another arrow out to shoot. (laughs) And once more, she turns back into a human. And so he casts his arrow to the stars and asks the woman to marry him. She says she will meet him at the church. And though he has to go through many trials and tribulations on his journey to the church and simply to win her heart, they eventually do marry. Though some evenings, just at that twilight period, he would see her watching out the window, looking towards the mountain and ask her what she was thinking. She would respond that he was the love of her life, but that the land, the nature, the deer, 
they were her dearest. Oh, that's kind of cute. <laughs> Like the chunky little puffin, deer are also a sign of plenty, of the good times, of cuppeths overfloweth, and of harvest overfloweth, and of general good times overfloweth. Speaking of good times overfloweth, <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed our foray into the Scottish Zoo. I'm sure it won't be our last. There are so many more amazing animals in our beautiful country. I can't wait to find out which ones of them we used to eat too. <laughs> It's wonderful to connect with Scotland through animals that inhabit this land and this mythology. From the mythical unicorn, revered for its purity and strength, to the hardy little puffin living in holes on St Kilda, we can learn a lot from our animal counterparts. Yes, the stories of these animals intertwine with our deep past and resonate with us to this day. The people of Scotland have always embodied the wildness of the wildcat and the stoic beauty of the stag. Scott will be far less beautiful if not for these creatures, both real and just not proven to be real yet. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. We enjoy making this wee podcast so much and hearing from you at home always makes our day. Oh, yes, we love it. And thank you so much for everyone getting in touch. We even got our first fan art this week. Thank you so much to Gary and Pam for the two stones, which had little lovely crochet, crocheted jackets on them. Crocheted? Knitted? Crocheted. Crocheted jackets. Honestly, it was amazing. Please give us a like and share on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates and tidbits on the podcast. And why not review us on iTunes? It really helps us out. Slangevar. Slangevar. records of it, Jenny. How do you think William I caught the unicorn? Did he set an elaborate trap with like a crate in the forest and like a little pot of Nutella underneath it? Because that would, that would get me pretty pretty quickly, actually. <laughs> actually, it got me once before in America and it was, it was pretty rough. The Nutella ran out fast. <laughs> You're clearly not a unicorn, Jenny. <laughs> no, just an idiot. <laughs>